We're in the book of Micah. And as you guys heard, uh, Pastor Lauren is going to be covering the whole book over the next two weeks on Wednesday nights. And today I've been given the idea of just what is the main point of Micah to cover that. And two words kept coming to my mind um, just as I studied the passage I was given, Micah 6 eight, justice, mercy, justice, mercy, divine justice, divine mercy. And it almost seems with the idea of justice and mercy like you have to choose between one or the other. But I think our God would say, actually, in his view, you can't have one without the other. They're linked. So that's what we're looking at today. So if you want to turn to Micah chapter 6, verse 8, that's where we're going to be. But first we have to ask the question, what is going on in this book of Micah? What is the book of Micah all about? So just some background. So the book of Micah is, it's the words of Micah the prophet to Israel, from God through the prophet Micah to Israel. Micah was a man who lived in a small town called Moresheth, and his name meant, who is like Yahweh. And Micah was called by God to be a prophet during divided times. Israel's land was divided into two kingdoms, or kingdoms the, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And not only were they divided politically, but they were divided by sin. They were separated from the heart of God by their own sin and injustice, is what Micah calls it. Not only that, but they were known for covenant unfaithfulness, breaking the covenant God had given them, breaking the promises that God had given them. And Micah just can't take it. So there's this great verse in Micah chapter 3, verse 8, where we see Micah just raising up as a prophet and saying, I am filled with strength, with the spirit of God, and with justice and power to declare how Israel has rebelled. This is a book of accusations. It's not fun if you're Israel to be receiving this book. He's accusing them for 500 years of rebellion, injustice, and sin. And he says, Israel, if you don't straighten up, Babylon and Assyria are going to come and wipe you out. So if you're someone in Israel at the time and you're hearing this message, you're probably wondering, well, what does God want from me? How can we avoid this punishment? Like, how can we turn? Like, God, what do you want? What do you want us to do? And that's where we get the classic verse. It's one of the most quoted verses in the Bible, but it's Micah chapter six, verse eight. And it goes like this. Micah responds. He says, listen, he's told you, O human, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God, which sounds so simple, right? It just sounds like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what God wants is for us to obey the law, follow the rules, be nice to people, and be humble. Sounds great. And we can almost read it kind of like, come on. I don't know if you've ever done your devotions and just seen how many times Israel's messed up, but maybe you're in a position where you're reading, you're like, come on, Israel, get it together. I mean, come on, you're the people of God. You, you know better. But I think we have to ask the question, we have to pause for a minute and ask, how do we see ourselves in the story? Because, guys, we can read the Bible with what's been called a hermeneutic of privilege. And this is super prevalent in the American church. Basically, we read the Bible and we tend to want to view ourselves as the hero of the story or as the underdog, never really as the villain or the person who's being preached against. And I'm so guilty of this. I read the story of Joseph, and I want to see myself as Joseph, the suffering servant, just toiling away and working hard and serving the Lord, and everyone else is against me, when really maybe God is trying to show me that my heart is actually more like the brothers in the story who mistreat Joseph. I can read the story of Moses and think of myself as the faithful follower of God, wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, trying to lead the people when really maybe my heart is more like Pharaoh, hardened to my own sin and unwilling to forgive or to repent. You know, there's that verse, that classic verse that comes up a lot in these kind of conversations. It's very timely. We use this verse a lot to talk about what's going on in our country. And that's the verse that goes, if my people humble themselves and pray, I will heal their land. But how often do we read that verse and we think, yeah, if those people would just humble themselves and pray, then the Lord would heal this land. It's very easy to say that and not if I humble myself and pray, if I repent, if I bow down before the Lord, then revival starts in the heart. And with Micah, it's easy for us to read it and once again see ourselves as the protagonist of the story. We read that verse. What does the Lord require? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. And we think, yes, if my landlord would just do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. 
If my boss would just be just, he's, he's a crook. You know, if he, well, not my boss. My boss is great. Um, but, you know, or your teacher. You know, if my teacher would just show mercy or, you know, if Hillary or Donald would just humble themselves and pray, everything would be okay. But you have to ask, who was Micah written to? Micah is written to God's followers, Israel. And so the context of the book is it's God's message to God's followers. Now, do you consider yourself a follower of God? A follower of Yahweh? I do. And so I need to read this book, not for me to sit back and judge the rest of the world, but as a critique of my own lack of humility, justice, and mercy. And so We've lost the art of self-reflection in our society today. We like to think about things that make us feel warm and fuzzy. We like to think about how we're doing good and how we're following God. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't like to sit around and think about my sin. It kind of bums me out. But the Lord calls us to self-reflect, to search our heart and to say, Lord, you search my heart. And if you find anything in that's not right, Lord, remove it from me. And so I want to invite us today to pray and ask the Lord to search our hearts to see what we might find. Will you pray with me? Lord, I just asked today that if there's any lack of justice, mercy, and humility in our hearts today as a church, that you'd reveal those things and help us to love people the way that you do. Change our hearts, change our minds in this time. We love you, Lord, and we ask this in your name. Amen. So what does it mean to do justice? And in your Bible, you might see in that first section of the verse, it might say, do justly. But a better translation from the Hebrew is just straight up to do justice. So what does that word make you think of? Well, for many of us, we think of scales. We think of a judge and a jury. You might think of a gavel. You might think of law and order. I, I don't ever watch that show, but I heard it's kind of good. I guess there's like a million spinoffs or something. But when we think of justice, we think of judicial. We think of cops and robbers, judges, judgment, crime and punishment. But today we want to look at what is God's heart for justice? How does God see justice? How does Yahweh see justice? And so we're going to look at the original Hebrew language, which to me is one of the best places to go. You see the intention of the writers of the Bible when they wrote these words. So the word justice, what does justice mean? What does it mean to do justice? You're looking on the screen at a Hebrew word. It's mishpat. Everyone say mishpat. Mishpat. And I love it. I love just how deep these Hebrew words go because the understanding of mishpat is wrapped up by the Hebrews. They would understand it kind of in three different levels. Justice, mishpat, would mean, one, righting something that is wrong. Two, giving someone what they're due. And three, treating everyone equally. And it's used over 200 times in the Old Testament. And it's usually paired with another Hebrew word, which is sedek, which means righteousness. So justice and righteousness. So... By our human understanding, it makes sense to us. I mean, we look and we're like, okay, that makes sense. Uh, the, the first, writing what is wrong. Okay, justice system. Someone does something wrong, they get arrested. The wrong is righted in the arresting. Makes sense. Uh, number two, giving someone what they're due. So if someone commits a crime, they deserve punishment. So they get it. Or someone works hard, mows your lawn, you pay them because that's what they deserve. We think of, number three, treating everyone equally. I guess everyone has the right to a fair trial. And all these things are true. These things are established by God. The Bible says that the law of God is written on every man's heart. And that's why most every society has justice systems and laws to keep people in check and to help people live in a way that honors one another for the most part. But God's view of justice, we have to understand, this is our man understanding of justice, our human understanding. God's understanding of justice is so much higher. There are so many more layers to it and we're just scratching the surface. This could be a whole series, but today we're just scratching the surface. So to understand how does Yahweh, how does our God view justice, we have to go back to the start. We have to ask the question, what is Yahweh like and how does he view justice? So think back with me to the beginning, to the garden. Now I'm going to use a visual illustration. This is, um, I wanted to get Jenga, but I'm too cheap for that. That's 20 bucks. So I spent seven bucks on Jumbling Tower because I'm cheap. Let's see if I can, all right, there we go. All right, so this represents, for the purpose of our illustration, this represents God's world. And it's full of what the Hebrews called his shalom, which means his peace, 
his perfection. See, when God made the world, there's all these different pieces that make the world function, and they all work together perfectly. He makes it seven days. He steps back, and he says what? It is good. It's functioning. It works. And God is so great because he's like a, he's like a happy, excited father giving his child a gift. He makes Adam and Eve the first humans, our original parents, and he brings them into the world and he says, my world is my gift for you. And it's, it's amazing. It's, it's fantastic. It's perfect. You can do anything you want. There's animals and rivers and forests and trees and I want to build a kingdom with you. I want you to be my sons and daughters and together we will rule the world. We will rule and reign as the language the Bible uses. It's this fantastic vision of going forward and doing amazing things. And yet Adam and Eve are given this great gift and what do they do with it? They sin. They make a mistake. Now there's a tree in the garden and God says you can do anything you want in this garden You can literally, there's animals, like go, I don't know, ride them, name them, talk to them, like do whatever you want. Have fun, have some children, like be husband and wife, like perfect paradise. It's amazing. You can do anything you want, but there's a tree. Please don't eat the fruit from that tree. And it's not God. See, what God says is don't eat the fruit from the tree or you will surely die. That's not God saying, hey, listen, that tree over there, that's my tree. Don't touch my stuff. If you do, I'll straight up kill you. It's not God's heart. No, he's a father who knows that that tree is poisonous, not just to the body, but to the soul. It corrupts the soul. It brings sin and death. And so he says, my children, I've given you the world, but just don't eat that tree. It'll corrupt you. You will die. Don't, just don't touch it. Trust me, I know. I'm your father. And what do they do? They go for the tree. They have so many trees. They go for it. And this is how we view sin a lot of the times. We see the world and We see Adam and Eve, and we see their sin as just Adam and Eve kind of removing one piece of the puzzle. You know, it was the first sin, so just one piece. No, when Adam and Eve sinned, this is what they did. They just, they broke the world. Eating that fruit, it broke the world. It corrupted the system. It ruined everything. And now God is like a parent. Have you ever been a parent? I'm not a parent, but I've been a kid. Have you ever been a parent where you're standing there and, and, and something is broken and your kid broke it? And now they're hiding, Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes, covering themselves. They know they've broken something. They don't even understand how big the mess they've made. It's a huge deal. God is looking at the disaster of his world falling apart, and he has a choice in that moment. What is the rest of human history going to be about? Is the rest of human history going to be about punishment? Because this is a big deal. It's a big deal. We, we think of, in the human sense of justice, you do the crime, you do the time, and we also think, let the crime fit the punishment. Let the punishment fit the crime. Breaking the world is a big deal, right? You might think eating a fruit, like, not a big deal. Breaking the world, that's a big deal. So the punishment should be pretty big, right? Like, exile to Mars. You're on your own, Adam and Eve. Have fun without air. Or just, you know, straight to hell. You know, God, God could have done that. He could have said, you know what? You humans broke my world. The rest of your life, it's going to be punishment for you. Toil. I'm going to just wreak my vengeance on for you. I, I trusted you and my children. You broke my heart. So I'm going to break you. And that makes sense to us. Because remember, mishpat, justice. What is it? It's righting what is wrong. What's been wronged? The world. So in our human sense of understanding of justice, Adam and Eve need to be punished for this to be made right. Justice, mishpat, is giving someone what they're due. Who did this? Adam and Eve. What do they do? Death. The wages of sin is death. So what is God going to do? God's looking at the mess humans made. He's looking at the mess. And he's got a choice to make. What is the rest of human history going to be about? And God looks at his children hiding in the bushes and he has compassion on them and he bends down and he starts putting the pieces back together. He says, Adam, Eve, see that lamb over there? We're going to take the life of that lamb and its blood is going to cover your sins. And yes, Adam and Eve, there's consequences for what you did. 
You've brought sin into the world, so there's going to be diseases and sickness and death and poverty, war. Eve, you're going to have really gnarly childbirth problems, and Adam, you're going to have to get a job. (laughs) And I'm not going to be your boss. You're not going to like your boss. But we can fix this. I can fix this. See the difference? He's not Adam and Eve. Come here. It's time for your punishment. No, he's a father letting them know, you've broken something, so there's consequences. But I love you, and so I'm going to fix this. He acts out of his mercy and his love. Yes, there's consequences, but Jesus says, I will not let those consequences be the end of you. So go back to Mishpat. Justice. God needs to right what is wrong. He looks at the mess, the brokenness, and he says, I will write this with my blood. And then here's the key. Mishpat, justice, giving someone what they're due. Adam and Eve, broken. What do they deserve? Death. By all standards, except God has a higher view of justice. And so this is what God says. By this, you deserve death. But higher justice is me as your father, because I love you, because I made you, because I created you, because you're mine, you deserve life. You deserve love. You deserve forgiveness. But I didn't do anything, Lord. Exactly. You don't have to do anything. It's just because I love you. It's fantastic. It's so, it's so good. Adam is due love because God simply loves him. We are due love. That's God's justice. It's just, I never thought about justice this way until studying this. And so there's two types of justice in our world that we see, punitive justice and restorative justice. Now, punitive justice focuses on punishing the crime. Restorative justice focuses on fixing the brokenness caused by the crime and restoring the relationship. For those of you guys who are parents, when your kid sins, do you want to punish them just for the sake of punishing them? No, not most parents. Most parents want to do something. They want to restore the relationship. You want to bring your child to a place of repentance. For me, sometimes I would hurt people. Not like punching people, but like with my words at school, I would say things that were hurtful. Or I would hurt my teacher by being disrespectful. And my parents were so great because I'd come home and um, they would I, would, I would complain like, oh, my teacher sent me out of the class and I'm in trouble and I just, I didn't do it. And this is what their response would always be. It's your fault. <laughs> like you did it. You need to repent. Like that was always, like they, my parents never were like, oh, your teacher's probably bad. I'm going to call him and chew him out. No, it was always just like, yeah, if your teacher's mad at you, it's your fault. It's great. I love it. I'm going to steal it when I parent. Um, But here's the thing. My parents never focused on punitive justice. It was never just like, you did wrong, go to your room. But why? Can we talk? Just go. Just go. See you at dinner, you punk. No. My, my parents were so good. Their goal in punishing me was restoration. It was, they'd sit down with me and they'd say, listen, what you did, you hurt your friend, you hurt your teacher. Not only that, you hurt the heart of God. And you need to repent. And here's what repentance looks like. And I just remember situations where tears would be streaming down my face when my parents would be just challenging me. And it was so good because God loves this kind of justice. Do you see in our world that God is just throwing lightning bolts and thunder at people all the time? No, God's heart is restorative justice, bringing people back to the way they were intended to live. Now, so the question is, who who deserves justice? That's a question that's big today. Who deserves justice? And we have so many standards for who we think deserves justice. I'm going to show you a familiar figure. You've probably seen someone like this sitting by the freeway. And I know for me, when I drive by, there's all of these human thoughts that come into my mind about why I should or shouldn't help them. Sometimes, straight up, I don't even make eye contact because I just, I don't want to feel bad in that moment. God looks at the homeless man and says, he deserves love, he deserves food, He deserves kindness and compassion because he's made in the image of God, because he's an image bearer of Yahweh. He deserves these things. And that goes against all of our human inclinations. We start to make all of these rational objections, you know, oh, you know, you can't just give things to a homeless person. I mean, they didn't earn it. They don't deserve it. They need to work for it. They probably put themselves into that situation. They need to pull themselves out of it by their bootstraps. Sure, 
Maybe they can't, but more likely they, they probably just won't. So don't give handouts. Well, what about us? What about you and me? Isn't it kind of the same? God looks at us and it's like, what do we deserve? What do we deserve? Death. And yet God looks at us and says, because you were made in my image, you deserve love and compassion and friendship and forgiveness. And you know what? The angels probably could be standing next to the Lord when he's saying these things and saying, but Lord, I mean, come on, these humans, they didn't earn it. They don't deserve it. They're not up here in heaven slaving away, working like we are. They need to work for it. You know, they need to just animal sacrifices and robes and temples and, and sacrificial ritual washing and all of these things. They need to do these things to earn your love. You know, they probably put themselves into that situation. In fact, they did. We saw the fruit. We saw the world break. They did it, Lord. Come on. They need to pull themselves out of it. Sure, I mean, we know technically they can't, but the reality is the humans won't even really try to be righteous or follow you, Lord. And God looks at us and says, yes, it's true. You can't do it. And a lot of times you don't try, and it is your fault. You got yourself into this mess, but I love you because I made you because you're precious to me. For kingdom people, which is us, the kingdom, we're the kingdom, followers of Jesus, for kingdom people, our view of justice is completely different than the world's view of justice. To do justice in God's eyes means treating every person like they are royalty. So let's look at what was the injustice going on in Micah's day? Well, Micah targets Israel's leaders, and he says, you've become wealthy through stealing and greed. He talks about King Ahab stealing a man's vineyard and and killing it to take his vineyard. He talks about not just the kings and the political leaders, but the church, the priests and the prophets. The prophets would guarantee God's blessing in exchange for cash. They got up and they said, if you donate to my prophet ministry, I will guarantee you a blessing, sir. I see that hand. I see that hand. Sound familiar? It's happening today. What else did they do? Well, the rich and the priests and the politicians, they were taking land from the poor people by force and selling it for a profit. They were forcing the poor into slavery to survive. In chapter six through seven, I'm I'm gonna paraphrase kind of Micah's cry of injustice that he puts out. He says this, the rich are full of violence. There is none righteous. They all wait like sharks for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net. Kings won't help unless there's something in it for them. Judges ask for bribes to decide cases. The proud rich man utters his evil desires and the king and judge scheme with him to make his evil dreams come true. Injustice is when we seek our own gain at the expense of others. And as long as we have sin in the world, we will have injustice. And just quickly to go over some justice we've seen, the human history, the story of human history is a story of injustice. It's the story of our American highways being built on the bones of poor minority neighborhoods. It's the story of pastors getting up in the South at the pulpits and basically making justifications and excuses for slavery and trying to use God's word to do that. Injustice is when a gay student is bullied at his school instead of shown love and pointed to the kingdom. Injustice is when starving children go without food or family across the world and in our United States. Injustice is when unborn children are not even given the chance to defend themselves and cast away because society sees them as a burden. Injustice is when someone is a target of violence because of the color of their skin. And injustice is when a policeman is a target of violence because of his badge. Injustice is everywhere. We see a story of injustice that I read recently. There's a homeless charity called Raising the Roof. And they surprised residents in a wealthy neighborhood with a sign that said, we're going to build this new homeless shelter and it's going to be amazing. It was actually a hoax. It was actually a publicity stunt to try to generate people talking about homelessness. They weren't actually going to build the shelter. They just wanted people talking about it. So the residents took notice. I mean, it's it's this big shelter they're building, 62 beds for the homeless, three volunteers on staff. Many residents called to complain. 
People were actually crying and upset about it. Raising the Roof, which had left a contact number for their homeless shelter, um, they recorded some of the responses they got. Here are some. One person called and they complained, the property values of our neighborhood are going to go down because of this. Another person said, how did you possibly, possibly get the permission to ruin a perfectly good neighborhood by putting a homeless shelter in here? Another person said, you know, these are all drug addicts. You're ruining a perfectly good neighborhood. Another caller declared herself a very tolerant person, but she said, a homeless shelter, that's going over the edge. That's crossing the line. People in this neighborhood made about $23,000 more than the people in their city. It's a very wealthy neighborhood. Injustice is when we value ourselves more than others, and don't we all do that every day in some way? We're called to give people what they're due, and we think, like, uh, helping people who are less than me? I mean, that's not justice. That's charity, right? No, God calls it justice. It's all wrapped up in the greatest commandment. Remember, the, the, the lawyer asked Jesus, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, it's simple. All of the law, all of the Torah, all of the prophets, it's all wrapped up in this idea. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. So it's what? Giving people what they're due. Justice, mishpat, giving someone what they're due. What does God do? your heart, your mind, your soul, everything. And then what do people do? Loving them more than you love yourself. It's mishpah, it's justice, it's all wrapped up. Jesus says it's the greatest commandment. And yet there's injustice in all of us. And I'll be the first to admit, and I didn't think about justice this way until just studying this. So about a year or two ago, I was in Oklahoma. I was walking through the streets my wife and I were there for a concert. Remember the band Hanson? <laughs> They're still making music. Um, actually, really good. Anyway, though, um, don't judge me. Anyway, so um, we're there for the concert. And um, my wife is with some friends, and I decide to wander the streets by myself. And I run into this man named Joshua. Randomly met him on the street. He starts talking to me. The name I gave him in my mind was Crazy Joshua. I don't know if you've ever talked to someone who has mental illness, but this guy had something going on and it was like every thought was disconnected from one another. Like one minute he's talking about how bologna is better than turkey. The next minute he's talking about Holy Spirit Kung Fu. And then all of a sudden he's talking about like how the politicians are corrupting things. And then he's talking about his favorite TV show. And like every sentence just ends with a new topic and everything was going in different directions. And I don't know if you've been in this situation before, but I'm, I'm, I, this guy came up to me. I didn't come up to him. He starts talking to me. And my response is, I don't have time. Like, I don't want to talk to this person. Like, I don't want to do this. I don't know if you've been there, but that's where I was. I didn't want to be in that conversation. And I was like, I got to find a way to get this guy to stop talking so I can leave. And the Lord spoke to my heart and said, Aaron, the way you're treating this person, this is not justice. What are you talking about, Lord? I'm not taking anything from him. I'm not hindering his life. I'm not causing him any problems. I just want to leave. I just want to get out of here. I just want to do my own thing. And the Lord said, you view him as crazy Joshua. I view him as beloved Joshua. I love him. He's mine. Won't you give him what he's due? Won't you give him the respect and the courtesy to let him talk to you for a bit before you just run off? And I was just so convicted. And I... I asked him, you know, do you want to go to the coffee shop with me? And amazingly, he did. So I went to the coffee shop, and we're getting coffees, and, and he's just going crazy every other direction, just, just talking and talking. And, and I'm just sitting there, yeah, huh? And I'm just praying, like, Lord, help me. And all of a sudden, like, the walls came down, and I had this, like, moment of lucidness where everything he said started to make sense. And he started talking about his childhood and how it was really rough and really hard, a lot of abandonment, a lot of issues. And he kept talking about, he kept saying, the bad man hurt me. The bad man hurt me. And he kept saying it over and over again. And, and I asked him what he meant, and he wouldn't go into it. He shot off in some other direction. But my heart just broke. And I was like, man, I don't know who this man is and what was done to him. Something has hurt him. And I was so ready just to cast him off because he didn't fit in my plan for my day. When the Lord called me to do justice in that moment, giving that man what he deserved in God's eyes, and I was able to tell him about Jesus and point him to the Lord. And he was so excited and happy to hear that the God that made him loved him. You know, we a lot of times struggle 
We struggle with needing transformation, but not wanting it. That's what we need, a heart transplant. Tim Hansel says this. He's, he's this author from the 1970s, I discovered. He, he wrote a book in um, 1979 called When I Relax, I Feel Guilty. <laughs> and he says this. He's from the perspective of somebody who basically doesn't want all of God just enough to make them feel good. He says this, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or to pick beets with a migrant farmer. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, but not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. This is us. This is me. I want God to bless me. I want him to touch me. I want him to do great things in my life, but I don't want to follow him enough that it actually affects the way I have to live my life and the way I treat people. But God has called us to what? Do justice and to love what? Mercy. And so in the second half, we will explore mercy. More Hebrew words. Are you ready? Wow, (laughs) great response. Well, I love them, okay? So justice is what? Mishpat. So the Hebrew word for mercy is chesed. Everyone say chesed. The first service, people rolled their R's with it, but you guys did good. Um, So here's what chesed means. It's so good. So again, it's, it's, it's three-part meaning to the word mercy. When we think of mercy, what do we think? Like, oh, please, like, I know I did this thing, but please, mercy, spare me what I deserve. Like, that's what we think of mercy, and that's true. That's very true. God spares us. But when God uses the Hebrew word hesed, and in Micah 6 eight, it's hesed, and if you look it up, the, the, the translation of it, it, it comes up with these things. Loving kindness, faithful love in action, and three, covenant faithfulness. It's so Good, covenant faithfulness. If you actually look up the Hebrew translation, the literal Hebrew translation of Micah 6 8, it says, do justice and love covenant faithfulness. So what is, what is covenant faithfulness all about? God makes covenants with people. It's agreements. It's him saying, we're gonna work together to accomplish something. God doesn't want you to just sit back and let him rain down blessings on you. God wants you to participate in what he's doing in the world. And so God makes Adam and Eve, and he's like, I've got this covenant Here's what's going to happen. Our partnership. I made the world. Here's my end of the bargain. I am going to be your king, your father, your friend. I will love you. I will take care of you. I will protect you. I will sustain you. Here's what you have to do. Just love your wife, Adam. Take care of the garden. Love the animals. Take care of them. Be a king. Be a king on earth. Be be a king under me. Rule with me. That's all you have to do. One condition. just, Just don't eat the fruit. And we, ah, oh, we eat the fruit. We break the covenant. Noah, God floods the world, makes a covenant, says, no, I'm going to partner with you. You're the next Adam. Here's, what, here's the thing. Okay, Noah, I'm never going to flood the world again. I will be righteous. I will uphold my end of the relationship. Just follow me and honor my covenant. Next chapter, Noah is passed out drunk, getting into sketchy stuff. It's not good. Abraham, Abraham, I'm here. The world's falling apart, but Abraham, I'm going to partner with you. Here's my covenant with you. Follow me, honor me, and I will turn you into a nation that will bless the people of the world, and I will raise up a king, a Messiah, myself, who will come and save the world. Abraham, follow me, and Abraham lets God down. Moses lets God down. David lets God down. Person after person, Israel, over years and years, if you read your devotions, if you're anywhere in the Old Testament, you're probably just thinking, Israel, what are you doing? But it's the same mistake we make. And that's why God's covenant faithfulness is so amazing, because he's not just sparing us. His mercy is not just him sparing us, it's him saying, I'm going to be faithful to the promise I made a long time ago that I would rescue and redeem and save. Every time God shows you mercy, that mercy, that's covenant faithfulness. In Micah 7, verse 18 through 20, it says this, Yahweh delights in covenant love. So he will again show compassion. He will trample our evil and he will toss our sins into the depths of the sea. It is God's delight to show you mercy. That's so good. So Jesus is our ultimate example of this covenant mercy. He's the ultimate example You know, 
some of the times um, when we look at what Jesus did, in the modern context, people might call it actually uh, social justice. Because Jesus is what? He's healing the sick. He's feeding the poor. And, you know, social justice kind of becomes a dirty word in our culture, depending on what side of the political spectrum you fall on. So for Jesus, I've heard some people say, you know, they've asked the question, why did Jesus heal? Why did he feed the hungry? Why did he do these things? I've actually heard some people teach it where it's like, well, you know, Jesus wasn't really that concerned about the poor. I mean, he just wanted to kind of use them as a prop to show people who he was. That's why he healed people. He didn't really care. Like, he just wanted to prove, oh, I'm God. Look at my miracles. But you know what? I've never read a passage where Jesus looked at a hungry crowd or a sick person or a lame person. And I've never read the Bible where it said, and Jesus saw to himself a publicity stunt opportunity. And Jesus said, oh, this is going to get people talking. No, it always says, and Jesus saw compassion. Jesus took compassion on the crowd, on the leper, on the lame and the sick. Jesus genuinely cares about us, the body and the soul. That's why when Jesus, remember, mishpat, justice, writing something that's wrong, Jesus sees a sick person and he goes, that's wrong. I didn't create people to be sick. Jesus sees a hungry person. That's wrong. I didn't make people to be hungry. And so he writes those wrongs and he calls us as kingdom people to do the same thing, to show people justice and mercy, mishpat, and has said, Yahweh's justice is all about loving people who are less. And we're all less than Yahweh, so that makes sense. But he sets the example. All throughout the Bible, this is what God commands Israel to do. Every time justice comes up, issues of justice, he says, Israel, love the orphans, the widows, the foreigners, the poor, the sick. And remember, the verse says what? Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. It takes humility to hear these things and actually do them. Who is Abraham? Some guy out in the land of Ur, worshiping the sun, just looking up, I worship you, son. God shows up, that's the wrong God, here I am. Oh, praise the Lord. (laughs) Glad to know my eyes are starting to hurt staring at the sun. Um, Who was Israel? Israel was a people who were ex-slaves, cast out from Egypt, wanderers in the desert. Who are we? Sinners who were forgiven. We're, We're nobodies. Followers of Yahweh do justice by loving the undeserving because they realize they themselves are undeserving and yet loved. And at Calvary Vista, I'm so blessed to be a part of a church that does justice. We have a food pantry that we stock all the time from people in the body, you. You bring in food and we stock it up and people come in all the time. People who are sick, people who are poor, people who are homeless. And we give them bags and boxes of food. It's such a blessing to be a part. Homeless people come through our doors And my amazing boss, Steve, always gets them connected with someone to pray with them and talk with them and share. And many times we've been able to actually provide homeless people by connecting them with someone in the body who can give them a job and give them work to do. We partnered up with Solutions for Change to help the homeless and families in our community. We have missionaries in our church, like Pastor Lauren, who's going to be coming up on the next couple of Wednesdays and teach, who go to the farthest parts of the world to bring the justice and mercy of the gospel to those who desperately need it. We send people from this church to the hospitals to go visit people who are sick. We send people from this church to bring meals to the hungry. In youth ministry, one of the things that we do to bring justice into our context is we see a lot of times young men who are fatherless or young girls who are fatherless or motherless and live with grandma and grandpa. And, and we look and we see this, this person is, is lacking support and family love. And so we come alongside and we say to do justice for us is, you know, me and the counselors and my wife, we will be brother and sister to you. We will help you. And we say to single mom, how can we help you while you're dealing with your runaway teenage son? How can we be there? How can we support? How can we pray for you? You know, it's a joy to walk in the steps of Jesus because that's what it is. It's walking in the steps of Jesus. And Jesus gives us one of the best examples of justice and mercy in the story of the woman caught in adultery. So in that story, what do we have? We have a woman. The Pharisees bring her out. Jesus is in a crowd. She's draped in a sheet. They throw her down in front of Jesus. And they say, Jesus, this woman has committed adultery. She slept with a man who's not her husband. You know what the law says, Jesus. And they pick up a stone and they say, Jesus, do justice. Do justice. You know what's right. You know the law. Do justice. And Jesus has got that stone. And it brings us back to that moment in the garden. 
Someone's done something wrong. God has to make a choice. What is this moment going to be about? Divine retribution? Punitive justice? Or is it going to be about restoration? Putting the pieces back together? Because, guys, we don't have to choose between justice and mercy. They go together. And that's why in that moment, when everything's broken, and that woman, the pieces of her life are broken and shattered all around her, and they say, Jesus, do justice. Jesus puts down the stone, and he says, I am doing justice. And he looks forward to the cross, and he says, I will do justice. And he looks at the woman, and he says, it is because of her that I go to the cross. Because in God's eyes, in God's view of justice, yes, she, she deserves death for what she's done, but so do all of you. He says to the crowd, and he says to us and you and me, and he says, in my higher view of justice, what this woman deserves is not me throwing a stone at her, it's me embracing her. It's me showing her love. Because even though she sinned, I made her for love. I made her to be loved. And so God's justice is loving the sinner despite what we do. And it's accomplished because Jesus paid the penalty for us on the cross. That satisfies the the punitive justice part of it. We want that. Like, we want to see justice done. Jesus says it was at the cross. So, as we wrap up, I want to talk about the greatest injustice that Israel committed during this time and that we are also always in danger of being guilty of. And that is the failure to be a kingdom of priests. I want to tell you guys the story of the wicked husbandmen. And this is not going to be a story for the women about how your husbands are evil. You're like, yes, I've been waiting for this parable. The wicked husbands. Yes. Um, No. Um, So husbandmen, it's basically a farmer, someone who takes care of something. So um, here's the story. Jesus says there was once a vineyard there's a man who had this vineyard. Vineyard produces grapes and wine. And the man says, the rich man who has the vineyard, I've got a plan for this vineyard. Like, I want this vineyard to grow. The best grapes, the best wine, because I want to bless the world with it. I've got a plan. Like, just this vineyard is going to bless the village and the town, and it's going to expand out into the world. Like, this, this village, this vineyard is great. And so he brings in some husbandmen, some workers, some farmers, and says, guys, I want you to take care of this vineyard. I want you to grow it and cultivate it and bless it. And it's just, it's going to be great. And, and what happens? The farmers, the husbandmen, they actually, after time, the master doesn't come back and they start to think, you know, we like this vineyard. I think this vineyard is for us. I think that was actually the intention all along. Like we should just drink the wine. We should just enjoy the grapes. This is our vineyard. No one touch our vineyard. Well, then the master hears about this, so he sends servants. And servants come, messengers, and they say, listen, listen, this isn't what you're supposed to be doing. Well, the farmers, they pick up rocks, and they throw them at the servants, and they run away. So then the man sends his son, and the son shows up and says, listen, I've come to collect the fruit and the wine, and now give it to everyone. And then they kill the son. Now, Jesus does this story to draw amazing parallels I don't know if you can see them, but I'm just going to point them out the way Jesus points them out. So he's talking to Israel. He's talking to the leaders, the religious leaders. And he says, listen, in this story, you're the workers. You're the workers in the field. You're the husbandmen. The vineyard is the kingdom of God, which was supposed to start back in Eden, and then we messed it up. And God said, I'm going to do everything I can to bring the kingdom back. I'm going to make a way through my son. And so he gives to Abraham. He says, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom, Abraham. The point of this kingdom is it'll grow, and then the king will come to rule, and then everyone gets to come into the kingdom who wants to come. It's open to everybody. Abraham, you will be a father of many nations, and someone from your line will come and bless everyone, the nations of the world. But Israel fails to realize this. And they think it's for us. It's all for us. So the Lord says messengers, prophets, and then he sends his son. And they kill the prophets and they kill the son of God. Here's where Israel went wrong. And here's where we are in danger of going wrong. The first thing they did is they forgot who the kingdom was for. Remember, the point of the kingdom is saving the world. It's God's rescue plan. It's bringing things back to the way things were in the Garden of Eden. Heaven, heaven is our goal. 
where Jesus is king and he rules and reigns and we rule and reign with him and there's no more sickness, there's no more death, there's no more sin, there's no more injustice. Everything is just and righteous and right. That's what we long for in our bones. We want to see that happen. And Israel forgot who the kingdom was for. Did you know when Jesus showed up and he started talking to his disciples about how he was the Messiah, their response was like, it wasn't, yes, now the kingdom can come to the world and everyone can be saved. This was the response. Yes, you're the king, Jesus. Grab a sword, go stab Caesar, take over, kill the Romans. Let's rule Israel again. Let's, let's make Israel great again. It's what they were going for. That was their mindset. Yes, I know. I know. The second thing they forgot is what a priest does. And I had always heard in, in the Bible about priests, and, and I look today at kind of modern depictions of priests. This was kind of my idea of a priest. Robes, washing of hands, traditions, studying in the library, learning, just becoming knowledgeable about God, and just very religious and very traditional. So in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, God says to Israel, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Here's how I always interpreted that verse. A kingdom of priests, a kingdom of people who are really, really religious. Just keep all the rules and they're holy so like they don't get mixed up with those other nasty nations. They don't, you know, unless they're going to conquer them, but they, they just, they stay away from them. Stay away from sinners and just, you're just holy and hunker down and, and, and you're in the church on your knees just praying for hours and hours and you're, you're just, you're, you're a priest. Do you know what the meaning of priest is? It's not religious traditionalist. It's holy relational bridge builder. A priest is somebody, when God established what a priest is, a priest is someone who stands between God and man and joins their hands together. A priest is someone who builds a bridge between God and man. And it's not that God needs the bridge built. A priest is someone who shows people what God is like. He shows him the love and compassion and mercy. A priest is someone who says, I'm going to bend over backwards to show you what Yahweh is like so that you can follow him and worship him too. And they forgot that. They forgot what holiness means. Holiness doesn't mean perfect. It means set apart for a purpose. And they forgot the purpose they were set apart for. And we do this in the church. We forget who the kingdom's for. We think of Christianity as the kingdom and we're like, it's for us. It's for us. We need more Christian music. And like, there needs to be more Christian movies in the theaters. And we need just Christian t-shirts and bumper stickers. And like, I don't want to talk to non-believers because they're gnarly. I just, I hope I get to work in a Christian environment. And I hope I get to be a pastor and work at a church and ministry because that's where the real stuff is done. It's when you work in a church. And we just, we think this way. We want to be isolated from the world. We want our own little kingdom. When the kingdom of God was never supposed to implode inward, it was always meant to expand out and so the world, we forget that we are called to be a kingdom of priests. Because remember, we, we have inherited the kingdom. Us as the Christian Gentiles and then the Messianic Jews who follow Jesus Christ. We have inherited this role to steward the kingdom of God, salvation, people being able to receive Jesus Christ and step into the kingdom no matter what their background or sin or mistakes Everyone equally gets God's justice when God says, I pay for your death on the cross and I give you my life. But we forget what it means to be a kingdom of priests. We think, I just gotta be holy. I just gotta be set apart. I gotta make sure that I go to a different church every night of the week. I gotta just go across town and go to all these different church services and I gotta have a small group Bible study every night and every time I drive in the car, it's gotta be praise music nonstop and I just, I'm never gonna talk to non-believers because they might poison me with their nastiness. <laughs> That's no, no. Kingdom of priests, bridge builders. How do you build a bridge unless you get down where the people are? We grab the hand of the sinner and we, we bring him to God and we say, let me show you the God who loves you. So to wrap up, heavy stuff, good stuff though, hopefully. I've got something even heavier to end on, if that's okay. Um, how many of you guys like Switchfoot? Might be less hands after this. Okay, John Foreman of Switchfoot wrote this amazing song called Instead of a Show. Here's the lyrics. John Ford, this is written from the perspective of God to the people. 
So this is God speaking through the words of this song. I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your praise, the hypocrisy of your festivals. I hate all your show. Away with your noisy worship, away with your noisy hymns. I stop up my ears when you're singing them. I hate all your show. Instead, let there be a flood of justice, an endless procession of righteous living. Instead, let there be a flood of justice instead of a show. Now, you, you can hear these words, and you can say, can we even read this song in church? Like, ugh, it doesn't make me feel good. It sounds kind of gnarly. I don't know if this totally represents the heart of God. God wouldn't say, I hate your show and worship. So... John Foreman actually didn't really write the lyrics to the song. He actually pulled them. It's a quote from a really well-known book. You may have read it. It's actually the Bible. Um, Yeah. So like double dose of heaviness. Amos chapter 5, verse 21 through 24. The words of Yahweh to his people. I hate all your show and pretense the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice and an endless river of righteous living. As we wrap up today, here's what we need to understand. Remember what Paul said. I can preach I can have all the wisdom in the world. I can move mountains with my faith, but if I don't have love, I'm just a clanging symbol. It's not that, the, the message today is not that God hates when you sing songs. <laughs> it's that God loves you. God loves the world. God wants to right what's been wronged. He wants to fix the brokenness. And he wants to give people what they're due. And all through our life, we see people and we say, you're not do anything. You hurt me. You wronged me. Or maybe you just haven't done anything for me. You don't deserve my love. You don't deserve your compassion. I've got my own things going on. And God says, if that's the way we view people, it's not justice. And he doesn't want to hear our praise unless we're actually living out what the songs say. We've all been given amazing grace. And so we're all called to do justice. How do you do justice? You treat everyone the way that God sees them, whether it's your husband, your wife, your children, your boss, your neighbors. Yeah, even that one. The people in your life who have different political views than you. Scary, right? God calls us to love them the way that he sees they deserve to be loved. So we're going to end with some songs. I'm going to pray. And let's just ask that God would make this a time of reflection. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you for your mercy, your chesed, your covenant faithfulness. God, you are so excited about keeping your promise to rescue us. You're so excited about your promise of a new heaven and new earth. You're so excited about this story not being about all the wicked things we look out our window and see. You're so excited about this story being about restoration, regeneration. God, help us to be people who do justice because you have done justice to us by paying our sin on the cross. Help us to love people the way that you say they deserve to be loved. As we take this time to reflect, God, I pray you'd speak to our hearts. We love you, God, and we ask this in your name. Amen.